0: Liz, what a lovely spread you put on this morning. Who did the, who did the catering today? Because I'm enjoying a lovely piece of zucchini toast bread, and it's one of the most wonderful uses of eat the pest. Did you make Did you make this? So you bake this. So you, uh, that's why you're up all night, and why you've had flour on your cheeks when I saw you this morning when I got up from my swim. Thank you, Liz. Isn't that amazing? See, Robin Archer doesn't do that when she works for the Adelaide Festival. <laughs> <Isn't> it's amazing, <laughs> amazing the way this plays. Hilary McNev and I have so much fun when we come here because it's just it it is such a community community.
1: We get honey and fresh fruit and yep. and and cakes. Did
0: you get a did you get a jar of honey from Frosty? I
1: certainly did, Frosty. Thank you. And he bought us some fresh fruit yesterday down at the, at the wharf, at the festival. And Heather. Heather and Frosty, thank you very much for our honey thank and you. our food. Um. Thank you. Takes yes. We're going to come and actually raid the garden before we leave. Just quiet. If you see two people out the back in balaclavas picking the fruit off the trees, <laughs> that'll be us.
0: Oh, well, I hope you had a good, uh, a good morning tea. Um, we're going to go underwater now. Oh, no, not, before we go underwater, let's go and look at the coast. Um... We think of it. We think of the oh look. So I saw some imagery the other day from Tourism Victoria, the Great Ocean Road. The Great Ocean Road. It's this icon. It's up there with the Sphinx and and the, you know and the and the Eiffel Tower. It's been there forever and always will be. And the funny thing is that that Great Ocean Road has been built on a dynamic landscape. And we all, are coast a dynamic landscape. That landscape, that landscape, you know, I live in, the, in, live in Middle Park. There's a place called Esplanade in Port Melbourne that's the old foreshore. It is three blocks back, you know, they haven't just infill fill it, you know. That's man-made change. But the, the, the coast is dynamic. It's changing. But we put infrastructure on that coastline. We have done this amazing job of making these beautiful towns. But, you know... We, you know, as we're saying, this, the sea has this amazing power to give, but even more powerful uh, more powerful <laughs> forces at work that can take away again. And uh, we'll, start this morning, um, we'll start this morning. We'll start this morning. We'll come to everyone else in a minute. You, we'll, you can throw in any time you like, and Hillary as well. Um, we're going to be talking about coastal estuarine at the, uh, the Coastal and Estuarine Ad- Adaptation Lab at Melbourne University. And from that is Dr. Rebecca Morris. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So tell me, so tell me, like we, we know, uh, the residents here know we've got, we uh, are under, under uh, almost existential threat of having our main road into town eaten away by the next big storm. What can we do about that sort of thing? How can we do that without building great big New South Wales style concrete barriers? What, what, what can we do?
2: Yeah so like you said traditionally we've responded to these problems of erosion and flooding on our shorelines by building these engineered structures and we've been doing that for thousands of years. New groins coming at Poly Bay I think last, since last time I even came here. Sea walls, revetments. But I bet, due to the need for more protection along the coast because our coasts are more rapidly changing than they were in the past. Um, Management is trying to think about alternative solutions that are more environmentally friendly, more adaptive, that potentially aren't causing other issues further down the coast. And so ways that we can do that is to actually harness nature. So when you look out this gorgeous window here, you can see these lovely dunes. Dunes provide a natural coastal protection for us on our coasts. Also, things like mangroves, salt marshes, shellfish reefs—they all um, attenuate waves as they come as they approach the shore. They stabilize sediments, and so they have a really great. Effect a great way of providing us with this natural coastal protection, but unfortunately in many areas, we've actually lost this. And 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 here in
0: Victoria, we have uh, the most Southern extent of mangrove forest in the globe.
2: We do. So Avicennia marina, our one species of mangroves in Victoria, is, yeah, the southernmost extent of Australia. So it's kind of cold for mangroves down here. If
0: anyone's <laughs> comes from Melbourne, they're driving over a mangrove forest at Stony Creek when they go over, there's a mm. mangrove forest there.
2: And that was a restored mangrove forest so as restored. well. Yeah, which is really interesting. So you can
0: restore mangrove forest.
2: You can restore mangrove forest. So in some areas it can be hard to restore, um, but certainly there's areas that we've lost mangrove forests and there are um, there's there's projects now that are trying to bring the mangrove forests back for various reasons, for the ha- habitat that they provide, for how important they are to fisheries, but also to provide coastal protection. Um, but what happens when we lose these habitats, when you get complete loss of them, you get this change of a system and it means that the juvenile ones can't actually colonise that area anymore. And so there's these really novel innovative solutions where you can actually try and still using engineering but trying to engineer with nature so you're trying to rework the environment to make it suitable for the juvenile mangroves to be able to colonise the, the area again.
0: And that involves nothing. And your website, which everyone should go to and have a look at, which your website is?
2: Yeah, oh, the website. So we have a good website that's called livingshorelines.com.au, and in there we actually did an inventory of these kind of projects that are being done in Australia. Um, so we have 138 projects in there um, because. Previously, we thought that Australia was kind of behind in these techniques, lacking behind the United States and places like the Netherlands, who have really been drivers in nature-based coastal protection. But actually, there's a lot more going on in Australia than we think. It's just that it's really being driven at the local scale, um, and these projects are not necessarily being disseminated so that other people can do the same thing or learn from them. Um, So, we created this database for all of Australia um, on these nature-based protection projects so that, that coastal managers can learn and do in other areas. I've
0: seen photographs of the rent of the mangrove forest where you've got these like hexagonal uh, concrete boxes in which you plant the hybridized species of mangrove.
2: Yes. And so,
0: like, and so you've got these seed, it's like going to land here but on, on the coast. That's uh, right. How does it take from those little seedlings to become a forest?
2: So for mangroves in Victoria, it's slow growing. They take about 10 years um, to grow into an adult and reach some size. But on projects that I work in in New South Wales, um, where we're kind of getting more tropical, within five years you can have large mangroves in those projects.
3: And that's probably the thing with being the most, southernmost area of mangroves, is they're really small, kind of like, um, yeah, like okay. tiny little mangroves. So like a metre, metre and a half, two metres is like a big mangrove down here. Whereas, yeah, you go to New South Wales, Queensland, the tropics, and they're proper big
2: Five or ten metres. Yeah. Yeah.
3: You see this real big difference in the mangroves we have down here that, yeah, a bit cold really.
4: (laughs)
2: Yeah. But I think when people think of mangroves, they think of the tropical mangroves and they go, you're not planting that in front of my house. Um, but really, in Victoria, yeah, they're, they're small, but they're still effective in coastal protection.
0: And beautiful forests, too. You wander through them at low tide. They're just a massive crabs and, and little things, even fish, little fishes are jumping about somehow in there. And then as <laughs> the, the tide comes in, you see the kingfishers, you see the nankeen night herons, you see the blue herons coming in. It's, they're, they're like this, a, when they go and flower, there's this amazing buzz mm. about the place. So cool. So it's not just the trees, not just forests. We're coming to Dr. Paul uh, Carnell from Blue Carbon Lab in a minute to talk about the kelp forest. But let's just go for a second to the, uh, this is a seafood festival. Let's talk about some of those seafood (laughs) ways of looking after the coastline. Let's let's talk about shellfish for a second.
2: Shellfish, so shellfish I think are quite attractive in coastal defence because they're hard infrastructure and so engineers can see them a bit more in the same way that they see some of these hard structures that they put on the coast. But shellfish reefs, we know we've lost well in Victoria over 99% of our shellfish, Um, the native Australia Anghazi flat oyster. Can
0: we make a picture of what they were like before colonisation? And what the uh, if you go along any the coast around Victoria, you'll see great big middens that are, meet 20, 30 metres deep of Anghazi oyster shells, the native Anghazi oysters. We can see that on land. What do they look like under, under the water? These these reefs.
2: Well, unfortunately, there aren't many reefs to actually if look like. But if, if we could time. imagine, <laughs> if we could imagine, so there's an intact one in Tasmania for Anghazi the only reef in Australia left. But they're just. They're a forest of organisms really, and the oyster is the is the I guess the main habitat former in these systems. So When you go to, for example, to New South Wales and you see the Sydney rock oyster in the intertidal, those ones are really just all oysters. But when you dig in and amongst the oysters, there's all these little organisms living around this oyster matrix. It creates this complex habitat that provides protection for so many other things. And then at high tide, um, fish um, come around the oysters as well. So the Anghazi. Has traditionally been seen as more of a subtidal oyster, so it's a similar situation but just deeper in the water.
0: It's been described as a Great Barrier Reef of uh, of the the, uh, the the shallow waters around uh, Australia from, uh, so let's say, Port Lincoln all the way to Malacuta and destroyed it almost 10 years of, of uh, colonization. Gone. It's, we don't even have a memory of it. We can use the word Tasmanian tiger. We've got a picture of that straight away. I'd say Angazi reef, none of you will have an image of that because they've gone, gone before photography, gone before underwater photography, gone, 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 except for the, what's happening with conservations like this. Also, we've got, that's the un, uh, underwater reefs, so we're underwater Angazis, uh, but also blue mussels as well.
2: Yes, yeah, so blue mussels would be our other habitat-forming shellfish in the bays. So there's obviously a big aquaculture um, for those ones, especially in Port Phillip Bay. And so we've been actually restoring reefs with um, mussels. We did one of those a few years ago in Port Phillip Bay. Um, and now we're looking at angazi reefs into more of a shallow subtidal, intertidal area where they can be used for dual purpose, for habitat protection, but also for um, coastal defense.
0: Food at some stage?
2: If we can get some self-sustaining reefs, then why not start harvesting them sustainably as well?
0: Okay, we're talking about so we're talking about uh, re-establishing these reefs. How do we how do they actually protect the um, how do they actually protect the shoreline? How do you actually get something? You know, we I think we've probably got an idea of how we can make a reef and we can get some shellfish that we were eating at lunch yesterday, we had our oysters, we put them in the bin uh, for Nature Conservancy, and they will then be uh, crushed and put in a bit of concrete and made them to form new reefs. So we've got them, but how do I actually stop us losing, just say, a piece of road work or, or a shoreline?
2: So when you put these really complex habitats into the shallow um, environment, they create um, a friction with the waves. So they they, um, induce drag. And so basically, when the wave energy comes into shore, this drag reduces that wave energy. Uh, Also, when it hits a reef and it becomes shallower, you get this depth-induced wave breaking. And then this, flow, this slow in the flow of energy um, promotes sediment accretion behind the structure. And things like mangroves also have these roots so they actually stabilise the sediments as well. Um, so it's very similar to putting a breakwater um, out into the ocean. Um, so that the purpose of them is to attenuate wave energy and accrete sediment.
0: Let's go underwater now. I love like this. Let's, mm-hmm. let's go underwater, the, yeah, the, the, the deep. Let's go into the deep. Um, we've got a little bit of um, a problem with our kelp forests, Dr Paul Carnell, and if you like uh, abalone, you can't have abalone without, um, without kelp forests. What's, what's the problem with our kelp forests?
3: Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> uh, good morning everyone. Um, yeah, really nice to be here. Um, yeah, we've, we've definitely noticed uh, a problem along all of uh, Victoria's coastline, but also in the bays, like Port Phillip Bay as well, um, with our two large kelp or uh, macroalgal species. So there's uh, Clonia radiata, often called the golden kelp, um, or the other one, um, is philosopher commosa, which is the crayweed. Um, and it's called the crayweed for obvious reasons. It's uh, one of the main habitat-forming species where you also catch a lot of crayfish. So both of these two kelps or, or, or large seaweed species are really important for the habitat for crayfish, abalone, and all the other fish um, and marine life that we get on our beautiful uh, southern coastlines. But unfortunately, we are living in the southeast uh, corner of Australia, and it's one of the fastest areas in terms of uh, a global warming of the ocean. And that's a mixture of, because the ocean itself is warming up, uh, but we are getting that strengthening of the East Australian current, so we're getting more warmer water coming down from New South Wales, um, and it's obviously particularly impacting that eastern uh, part of Victoria as those currents come down. And let's such. just paint
0: that current, because that, that, mm. that's, that current is, going, is coming up again and again and again in our conversation. So. Can you briefly describe what this eastern current is? Where does it start, where does it finish, what does it do?
3: Well, actually, um, if you asked most kids that might be in the audience, they would say uh, made famous by the movie uh, Finding Nemo. That's the current that the turtles and and uh, and our Nemo travels on. So yeah, it's a big current travels um, from the north of uh, the eastern coast of Australia, travels down, um, and it's bringing that that warmer water and a whole lot of uh, colourful fish and friends all the way down as well. So we're also finding not just the wa- the waters are warming, but there's other new species coming down this warmer water as it's pushing further and further south.
0: And what would one of those species be, Dr. Paul Carnell? <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, so, one that is really kind of big um, in. Kind of the parliamentary circles these days but um, has really been a big thing on the minds of fishes for a long time now is the long-spined sea urchin uh, centristephanus uh, rogerzii and so that's a sea urchin um, it gets about this big and has really big spines that come out uh, and it loves to eat kelp and other seaweeds and so as it's been coming down and been getting more and more established they actually move about and they can actually clear entire areas of all of those amazing big kelp forests and so we, we're getting loss of this habitat. And so when you lose the habitat, then you lose, yeah, the ability for the abalone and crayfish and everything to be able to find their little homes in there. It, it also, um, yeah, apparently competes with uh, particularly uh, the abalone. So you can imagine the abalone there, you know, in those little crevices, uh, trying to find a little home. Well, these urchins are also trying to find little homes and little pockets of the reef to be able to uh, have a
0: little home in. And so there's that little bit of competition for that space as well. I've heard divers in Malacuta. Ab-, ab divers in Malacuta describe uh, the difference it, it, the, that makes when you have the long spined sea urchin come in and what would have been uh, like uh, 10 meter high kelp forest like <laughs> great big tendrils of brown algae floating in the, in the current and with, with all sorts of fish uh, swimming between them they'll come back a season or a season a couple of seasons later after these invasive species have come through and there's nothing left but bare stone
3: yeah it, it, it really is a complete stark uh difference so yeah like just so there's the bare rock reef that you get underneath, and then all of the seaweeds and everything else grows on top of that. And then as soon as those forests are clear felled they're knocked down. You just get these bare patches of of a rocky reef, and it really changes what can grow and live there. I'm feel,
0: I'm feeling I'm feeling slightly um slightly um uh, upset at this. How do we um uh, how do we how do we, uh, what can we do about this and what, and what can the Blue Carbon Lab do about this? <laughs>
3: uh, well it's not just me I should say, there's a lot of people working on this issue and we've been working with Becky on sea urchins in, uh, in, in, in our Port Phillip Bay as well um, so yeah, so, so one of the ways is, uh, there is actually urchin fisheries, so um, again uh, speaking particularly of uh, the Asian market, uh, sea urchin is actually really popular, um, so there are so there is a fishery um, for, uh, for that species in the east um, and so, so particularly out in Eastern Victoria, but also down in Tassie as well, the fishes have really been getting on the front foot and they've been the ones really at the, at the, at the front battle lines of, this, uh, of, of these changes. And so actually over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, the, the abalone fishers, but also um, the urchin fishers have actually been going out and manually moving, smashing uh, the urchins on these reefs to try and make a dent and uh, try and either bring those reefs back or at least try and protect the areas that are still really nice. So if they have particular reefs that are there amazing, you know, uh, super productive reefs, they're really trying to protect those. And so those fishers have been doing an amazing, amazing job out in the East.
0: And uh, I think, and excuse my ignorance out there, the Victorian Fisheries Authority have changed some of the licensing around the harvesting of the long-spined urchin. Are you aware of what's happened in that case?
3: Um, little bits and pieces, but yeah, it's, um, I, I think it's definitely one of those issues that everyone's really trying to jump behind and do as much as they can, um, yeah, and, and VFA, um, yeah, yeah, I've been working with the fishers, I'm, I, I'm doing a lot of uh, uh, urchin control programs, yeah, trying to improve things in terms of licensing, um, uh, and, and urchins aren't just an issue in the east, so we have found in um, little pockets around Corner Inlet, Nuramunga, but also in Port Phillip Bay, <laughs> A different species, one that's actually native to the area is also causing a similar problem. And uh, so in the corner inlet example, um, there were some of the flathead fishes and other fishes in the area were like, oh, you know, we wanna go out there and stop the urchins from eating the seagrass. You know, VFA, can you let us go out and actually catch these urchins because we reckon we can sell them. And yeah, and VFA came to the party and um, now there's urchin licences in that uh, corner inlet area. So um, yeah, and that's been really effective at helping to curb that curb that down. Um, but Parks Vic have also been getting in there with, with our volunteers and uh, taking some hammers to the situation as well.
0: It'd be really interesting if we had a seafood uh, cooking expert in the room to tell us how to cook um, uh, or how to deal with a uh, sea urchin, also known as Uni. If, if, and if there was, Hillary McNeiman could have got a microphone um, to a, so a bald-headed man who's a seafood expert. He might be able, he might be give us, might be able to give us 30, a quick 30 seconds, just what we're talking about. Um, Oh my goodness, is oh. Peter Hilkey here? Is Peter oh he Hilkey God. in the house? Oh my
1: goodness.
0: <laughs> how, do you, how, how do we prepare? In, 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 in 30 seconds, 20, 60 seconds, how do we prepare uh, sea urchin so we can eat the problem? Yeah, exactly, with a hammer. <laughs> with a hammer. But once, once you actually take the sea urchin out and you clean, clean it out, best thing is just straight up raw down the hatch. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, what you can also do is actually, um, what I've done in the past, is get a little bit of butter. Put the sea urchin. Give that a mix. You can actually cook your fish in that. It is beautiful. There's so many little things you can do. Look out for it. Share it with your friends. We're touching upon that in this afternoon session as well. Uh, Dr. Paul Carnell, quickly, can we can we replant a kelp forest?
3: Uh, shortly yes, so yeah it's definitely a developing field um, and but, uh, just in the Queenscliff Research Labs which is where I'm based um, and also VFA as well we're actually growing new little baby kelps in there uh, this summer for the first time and so that's with the aim of areas where um, maybe we might remove the urchins but it's too far from the closest kelp plant for the the little baby kelps to get in, we might need to uh, get in and give them a little hand. So, yeah, we're growing new little baby kelps as we speak.
0: Little baby kelps. (laughs) I want to adopt one. (laughs) (laughs) If if we want to know more about what you're doing at the Blue Carbon Lab, how do we find out about it? Pens and papers ready? How do we find out about Uh,
3: it? So, yeah, Blue Carbon Lab, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, but also our website, which is Blue Carbon Lab. Uh, dot org. Um, so as the name uh, suggests, um, we also do a whole lot about how we can use the oceans to help combat climate change by sequestering carbon is another thing that we do as well. Oh, okay.
0: While we're here talking, about it, us, <laughs> We've got so much to get through and so the time. How do we sequester carbon in the ocean? Uh, So,
3: many of you might be familiar with, you know, if you fly on Qantas or you want to offset your emissions, as well as doing all the other things that you should do, which is reducing your emissions in the first place, Uh, but if you want to go that extra step, um, you can do things like plant a tree on the land, and, you know, we're all pretty familiar with that, but as Becky was talking about, we can plant mangrove trees, um, but we can also plant kelp, but there's also seagrass and salt marshes, and they're uh, up to 40 times more efficient at storing carbon each year. Uh, a kind of hectare for hectare. So a hectare of you know old growth forests in the Otways compared to a hectare of mangroves or of salt marsh or seagrass, they can store up to forty times more each year. So Amazingly efficient and effectively we're doing the science to help with those kind of offset programs and the government to be like okay Let's let's make the most of this opportunity and let's jump on board and uh, start Uh, And and you know we get so many benefits so you restore a mangrove forest and you're you're offsetting carbon But you're also protecting shorelines and you're also increasing fisheries, so we're doing all of these things at once and uh, Yeah, I think this is really the decade of restoration, I think, and the UN have even called it that, the, the, you know, 2020 to 2030 is a really big focus on restoration.
0: Save an ab, plant a little baby kelp. Um, <laughs> Dr. Paul Carnell from Blue Carbon Lab at Deakin Uni, thank you very much, for the, thanks for that. One way, of, one, way of looking after, uh, one way of looking after under the water would be to actually create a network of marine parks, and, one, and we have lots of different, I get confused. I get confused about parks and, and marine parks. I don't know about you, what can you do in them, what you can't do in them, who runs them? Is it, you know, is it the, um, is it Stonington City Council or is it the federal government, you know, is it Prime Safe? I don't know who's running them because I'm, I'm a landlubber and I get confused. Thankfully, to, uh, to help uh, get rid of that confusion, we've got an expert here from uh, from Southern Parks Australia, and it's uh, Andy Warmbrunn. Andy, good morning, how are good morning. you? morning,
4: yeah, very good, thanks.
0: Look, look, tell me what, can you give us an overview of parks? Who, with state, state
4: run some, government run some, but not all parks are the same, are they? No, that's right. So I'm part of Australian marine parks and we have arbitrary lines in the water that don't, don't mean much to the fish, but they mean a lot to government. So we have Victorian state parks, which isn't Australian marine Park. So the state waters generally go out to five nautical miles or back in the old day, how far you could launch a six pound cannonball. Um, that's where that distance comes from. Um, and so Australian marine parks start at five, uh, five kilometres, three nautical miles offshore. And so the Commonwealth jurisdiction goes around that. So across Australia, we've got a network of these marine parks. So we have over 30% of Australian waters protected by uh, marine parks now. One thing that people don't quite understand is that, one, they don't know where We exist uh, because we're over the horizon, no one knows. We're in water depths from 40 metres to 4,000 metres. So we cover everything from reefs to the absolute abyss. Um, All the way from Cocos Island and Christmas Island, which have just had two new parks released there, all the way down to Macquarie Island, halfway to Antarctica. So it's a big network and this area here, which we call the South East Network. So it covers Victoria, Tasmania and a couple of parks on the eastern side of South Australia. Um, We have one marine park here, which is the Apollo Marine Park. Um, So it's great to be in Apollo Bay talking about the Apollo Bay Marine Park, um, which exists uh, just off Cape Otway directly south. Um, And so with marine parks, there's all different zoning as well. So a lot of people think it's a marine park they're all no-take areas, um, which isn't the case. So the marine park zone here is what's called a multiple-use zone. Um, So that allows a whole lot of um, activities, so it's multiple-use. Then we have different, what we refer to as bars. So if you have a marine national park zone, that's a zone two. So that's basically just for scientific research. Then we have other zones that allow certain types of fishing and don't allow other, um, other things in, that you can do in there. So what we're trying to do in marine parks, we're protecting, first of all, we're protecting and conserving biodiversity through conserving the habitat. So the main thing, all marine parks, there's no trawling allowed. So we're trying to protect the bottom. And when we have special areas um, of reefs, we might have habitat protection zones, which restrict certain fishing methods that are impacting on the bottom. So there's a wide range of parks. And what we've been doing over the last 10 years in the southeast zone um, is discovering. So we work, we partner. We are not, we don't have our own boats, we partner with universities um, and other organisations throughout Australia to find out more about these parks. So we sort of design the parks, we don't really know what's in there because in reality how many people have been down to 2,000 metres. So, They're sort of planned out, but we've had the CSIRO investigator going out around Australia, finding out more. And what's exciting at the moment is the marine, uh, the plan for the South East is just coming to the end of its life. So in 2023, we'll be looking at designing a new management plan. And what that means is all the information that people like Deakin Uni have collected, and the more people have found out, everyone will get their say. So for example, In two weeks you'll be able to go online and say for the Apollo Marine Park what you'd like it zoned as and you can say why. So there's the opportunity for everybody from industry to recreational fishers to divers to be able to comment and try to influence what our marine park network becomes in the future.
0: So the mixed use, so in some marine parks we can have some, some like mining exploration and, and we, that's possible?
4: Yes, so some marine parks do allow for mining, um, zoning, uh, multiple use zones do allow for mining. Um, but the bar is raised higher than the surrounding Commonwealth waters next to it. So not only do they have to get permission from uh, the national oil and gas regulator, they also have to go through national parks. Um, marine Park. So we have a higher bar, and so we can influence them if we don't want that to happen. So, who's, and we being, or oh, the government as the regulators. Oh, okay. Yeah, but and we can do that through public. Um, comments, comments. Yeah,
0: because I'm thinking if, I, if I'm going to the botanic gardens and I see someone putting a drill in, uh, I, I'm, I'm, that probably wouldn't happen just because of the amount of social license that would, would cause. Things are, happening, uh, 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 things are happening out of sight, out of mind in, in the waters, how, but, but I think through people who are activists, that's becoming more aware, what's the pathway mm-hmm. to, if, if someone's engaging in this marine parks process, how do we engage as concerned Locals, people who are concerned about the sea. To get the message through to government that we if, about this new management plan, how do we get people to affect change of the use in the marine parks?
4: Yeah, so in um, in a couple of weeks there'll be a have you say um, process go out where everyone can comment. And I suppose numbers speak louder than words sometimes. The more people, the comment, and the more. More loud groups are the more the government has to listen to them as well. So that's a great way, and it's a great time. Now's the time in the next couple of weeks, and there'll be a couple of rounds of consultation to be able to put in your views. Sorry,
0: sorry, we're not. We're we're just. We're doing questions later on, just because we've got to keep the flow going. Sorry. Yeah, we get questions later on. Yeah, sorry. I just have to. We've got to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So okay, cool. So we got so. so we've got this um, this management program process going on, um, and look, I, I'm confu- I, I get a little bit confused because I don't know anything about uh, marine parks, um, and and the social engagement is such an important part. Um, Nari Rab, you're from Deakin University. You've done some research into this. What what does what the general population know about about, about marine parks?
1: Well, that seems to be a common theme from today is that you know we all seem to care about the ocean. And there have been lots of surveys done from government, industry, um, and academia as well. And the results are coming back saying that, yes, Australians care about the marine environment. But we don't actually know much about it. So when we experience the marine environment, it seems to be, majority speaking, from the coast, and we're looking out. So these Australian marine parks, which are out in offshore waters, like Andy was saying, five kilometres, five point five kilometres from from the coastline, we don't know much about what's what's down there. So there's um, there's a lot to learn, I suppose. And the the trouble with I suppose engagement in that sense is that, you know, if it's 5.5 kilometres from the coast and if everyone's experiencing it from the coast, how do we get people engaged with those things? And um, so that's where Adam and I and, and Tanya's research comes in. So we've put together a virtual reality experience based on Apollo Marine Park um, from all of the data that we collected. So the seabed mapping and then also um, the, the species that we found down there and put together a bit of an experience so that the public could get a bit of an understanding of what's there and then sort of develop that connection a bit further.
0: And you're referring to of course Dr. Adam Cardinelli next to me, he's from Deakin University. So you've actually had, you're talking about mapping underwater mm. so people can engage. So people like, again we've got this, 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 this thing. It's ever since time immemorial, we've, we've created an, an underwater experience in our own mind through myths and mythologies. We've got mermaids, we've got kraken, giant kraken, we've got man-eating whales that appear in the Bible. We've got, all, we've got all this mythology because we didn't know what's going on there. Now with technology, we're able to get underwater and paint a picture to bring those stories. Storytellers going underwater to come up and re-emerge with these stories. And you've used a process to map just off the coast here.
5: Yeah, um, down in Apollo Bay. So Dan Eridiconew, um a colleague at Deakin down in Warrnambool, who does a lot of mapping along the coast in Victoria and other places, has been using um, seafloor sea mapping and done a whole swathe. I think it's up to 25% of Apollo Marine Park now. Um, and finding ancient coastlines that would have been lived upon by um, traditional owners thousands of years ago when um, and and used. and um, through the, we're finding these these reefs that are out there in Apollo Bay that are really important environments um, and create uh, ecosystems for um, life out there. And so one of one of the things that we were interested in, and Dan, Dan did all the um, hard work of getting out on the boat and, fi- and mapping, mapping Apollo Marine Park. How
0: do you, how do you map it? What, what device are we using?
5: So he's got, a, he's got a, I am not the boat person, but he's, he's got a boat and he drags this, um, I think LIDAR and um, there's another fancy thing that he's got. He drags that along and uh, he just does hundreds of kilometres back and forward, collecting lines, transects of maps for, um, and they get down to meter resolution. So we really get to see what is down there in terms of structure, and, um, and the types of, so you, you know if there's reef or you know if there's these sandy, sandy um, sort of vast sandy plains that don't have a lot of seafloor um, uh, uh, sea structure, uh, but still have fish.
0: Still, have fish. I want to come back to the living, the, what we're seeing down there, because we're going to come back to this this powerful tool for engagement with community. And this is why we're here today. We want to talk to you about this tool that can be used to engage community, to tell people what's underwater, what's at risk if we if we don't get it right, if we don't get management right. Before we do that, because it's going to time this afternoon's program. You're talking about ancient, ancient, or you know, uh, not ancient, perhaps in the last six, ten thousand years, yep. shorelines that exist underwater. Uh, that have a cultural significance to people, even in this room. Can you tell me what they look like? What, what are we seeing?
5: So particularly at the, um, the top of the park in the north north um, west, there's, there's these ancient coastlines and it sort of steps down and we've got a map of it. We should maybe get the map out of the car. You can see it. <laughs> um, and also these, um, Dan's done some excellent work that maps um, ancient, oh, uh, yeah, these ancient um, riverways that run that would have run from Victoria and connect through King Island and down to Tasmania. And there's been some work from colleagues in uh, Deakin with Dan looking at the genetic connectivity of um, yabbies, who w- would have at some point shared um, genetic across Tasmania and Victoria because of that land bridge. And the um, traditional owners down here, and we're working with Eastern Ma Aboriginal Corporation um, in uh, Apollo Marine Park uh, and they're they're bringing on a sea country um, ranger to start to learn how to do this sort of work for themselves learn how they're going to be going out on the boat with Dan collecting data and building up the capacity to um, start doing
0: that work as um, sea country managers. You talked about a river network so perhaps is the Y River is the um uh, the, the the rivers along the Kennet river do they actually flow to the old bassian plain they yeah they would have they would, would they, have been flowing would they connect it with the Barwon?
5: i don't know that no that's dan oh, Dan's Dan's, okay. dan has Anyone? the map you can find the map on uh in a paper
0: somewhere. oh wow <laughs> so between us and Tasmania is a network of rivers that would have flown to even a greater mega river and at some stage it would have fallen off a, 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 a waterfall off the uh, what's now the continental shelf.
5: Something like that. And yeah. we've
0: got people had stories about that. They were yep. hunting, fishing yep. uh, between here and Tasmania. Yep. And, and that's a, that's a, what, That's what? only well, within the last 6,000 years, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it sort of ranges with probably yeah, up to maybe 20, 25,000 years. Um, yeah. But yeah, because there, yeah, there's a couple of different glacial maximums, I think. So the east had a, a land bridge that lasted longer i think Um, but but yeah certainly a lot of land out this there would have been a lot more land extended out this way at the top uh, top top corner where we've got a lot of the reef a lot of the structure um in apollo marine park that's 40 50 meters underwater. so it's but then we get down lower to like up to 80 90 when we go further in
0: just want to paint that picture because this afternoon we will be talking about some of those really long stories that uh that remain within the indigenous uh, mates who who um, uh, who have those stories from all around the coast that, that go back a long, 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 long way. And, you know, so the, the the water we're protecting underwater was once was once uh, a land where people yeah. were living, eating, fishing, hunting, uh, singing songs, and partying on. Um, so we've got all this information, Adam. Doctor, mm-hmm. Adam, we've got all this information. We've been underwater. We've got all this information. Yeah. We've got the lidar. It's had a look all around Apollo Bay. So we've got all this information. We've sucked it up into a mega computer. And there's a great big machine humming in a corner with lights yeah. and, and reels of yeah. tape going and yeah. bang, boop, boop, boop noises. And, you've, what, and at the end of the process, what, you've created something.
5: Yeah, the uh, few, few humans in between the computers and the, <laughs> and the creation. And they're very expensive humans. But um, they... Yeah, so Dan, Dan also did um, video surveys down there at 50 sites and we discovered 68 different um, species, uh, including you know, rock lobster, obviously, um, and seals and lots of different fish and a whole bunch of um, sponges. But we just don't know. Like we we got an expert, a leading expert in Australia to look at um, the video and try to identify a lot of the sponges down there, these rich ecosystems. Sponges are, are I'll step back one second. So when we think about the Great Southern Reef, temperate reefs um, and what we have down here, or when we ask people about um, marine um, reefs, they probably go straight to Great Barrier Reef, and they don't realise the richness and the diversity down here that we have with these sponge gardens. Um, and along, along those rocky reefs, they are just so diverse. Um, that
1: and just quickly, um, mo- like there's a huge percentage of the species down there that are endemic to the Great mm. Southern Reef, so they're found nowhere else in the world.
5: Yeah. And we don't know anything about basically the sponges. We know a little bit about the um, fish and the other species, but as Ollie was saying earlier today, we know very little. And in our experience, we um, recreated 17 of these, um, these 68 species and created an environment so we can connect people to this this um, this waterscape that, no, that very, very few people are ever going to get to experience. It's hard to get 80 metres underwater um, and, and see what's down there. And we, like you were saying earlier, out of sight, out of mind, we were, we're doing some research, and Nairi's running this research um, during her PhD, is to see whether taking people down to the reef, down to these sponge gardens, and seeing the beautiful diversity down there through the VR experience, whether that does help them connect to these places that they would otherwise never never get to, never understand, never know about. And we're wondering whether this medium that allows um, immersion and presence can help people um, experience something and, um,
1: and develop uh, a connection. Yeah, with
5: it. develop a connection and value for these ecosystems that are very, very important for us all.
0: Adam, I think you're inviting people to, at lunch break, to come and try it. The machine's just over there. It won't hurt you. There's no sort of electrodes or anything on your brain. Uh, (laughs) And we do get to go 80 uh, meters. uh, And Tanya King will give you a hand over there. She's part of the team as well. Go underwater, go and, uh, look at 80 metres underwater and see the species, uh, and you'll come back. This, it's, it's almost as good as Avatar. Um, and it's, it's, it is, it's, it's a pretty good experience. Um, now, we've got this experience, we've got this electric, electronic tool of virtual reality uh, that's a downloadable program for anyone who does have a VR headset, which could be a visitor information centre like a Port Campbell. It could be the Apollo Bay Visitor Information Centre uh, or, or Geelong, anywhere along the coast could be able to have these in there to engage people in this project. How do you see this rolling out as, as an engagement tool for people to get underwater and understand what's there apart from using those? How else can we get people underwater using your tool?
5: Yeah, it's a good good question. We, we've got some plans to um, try and engage schools with the experience and have school kids. Yesterday we were at the festival. That's another thing. We're we f- wanting places to take it to engage with um, people. We're at the festival yesterday. We're going to the Port Campbell um, Crayfest next month and we found that we didn't stop from 11 till like 4 or 4.30, there were just kids all over (laughs) us and and some some adults that really enjoyed it and um, it was very different to usual pamphlets and things and we think it's a it's a um, useful way to to um, have yeah,
1: particularly with the kids it was really interesting you know they, they go in and they're set, and mm. they're like oh it's a seal or oh it's a fish and then you know you go through the experience you scan the species and then all of a sudden they were saying oh it's a blue moor or oh it's an Australian fur seal okay.
2: yeah.
1: and um, so that's the names that they were reciting to us and and so there is that sort of like direct um, response of of yes increase. Okay. Understanding and engagement. There was
5: also with some of the sponge species that they're like, oh, it's an NA because we don't have a name
3: for it.
0: <laughs> nah, yeah, nah. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I really suggest you get on there because there's this really cool laser function where you get to the point of laser. I was tempted to try to pull the trigger to explode a seal. But
5: <laughs> no that, uh, exploding oh, seal. I'm <laughs> sorry. I, yeah.
0: Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> it, it is a re- it's a really, really good tool uh, because of, you know, those of us who dive or put a snorkel on, we can get so deep uh, before our ears start to really, really hurt. This is really, really cool to go underwater and see those sponges that, like, you know, I've heard about them. I've been at and bred about them, um, and, but now I can actually go under and see them. One of them is
5: a, one of the colo- colono- uh, colonial um, organisms, a bryophyte, a, a bryophyte that you were talking to Ollie about earlier. Yeah, okay. And it looks like crinkle cut paper, like it looks like crunched up paper.
0: Really weird. That's the skeleton prawn. No,
5: no, the um,
0: the the ascidian. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm I'm looking. I want to go back underwater. And okay. uh, hey, um, look, I, I'll thank you guys, guys in a second. Dr. Rebecca Morris, would you be happy to take a few questions? Yeah, of and then Dr. Paul Carnell from Deakin University, and Andy Warborn from Southern Parks uh, Australia, and Dr. Adam Cardinelli from Deakin, and Nari Raab. The rules are: introduce yourself. Can't make it a question. No statements, please. It's not Q and A. Gillian <laughs> McNeville, pass the microphone to you. Um, okay. Who would like to? Any questions from the audience, okay, please? Over, here we are. Um, Yeah, you have to have the microphone so we record it and, and, and announce your name. Okay, Sorry, something. just say your name and, and tell us where. you um,
1: My name's Jenny. I just wanted to ask. I don't think it's working.
0: Um, No, it's it's working. Please use use the microphone.
1: Sea urchins. I was going to ask, because once I saw a story, and you kind of answered it, on, um, uh, it was about the CSIO doing a, a project with the sea urchins and trying to get people to like, you know, start up a business and that. Have many people kind of taken up any interest in that, in doing that?
0: The question. Sorry, the question is. Sorry.
1: Yeah, it was just about like the sea urchins, like catching them, and the CSIRO uh, were um, like they were going to fund people to take up the business of selling them, so that they can like divers and that can go and catch them. Like, yeah. Yeah, has I'm, anyone? I'm, like,
3: has I'm happy to take that, in that? one.
1: Uh,
3: yeah, the, I mean, the, um, I'd also be interested to hear Josh uh, from the Abalone Council, who also does dive for sea urchins as well. Um, uh, what his thoughts are. I, I think it's a... within Australia it's probably pretty slow growing Um, but there is actually a restaurant in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne called Uni Boom Boom and they specialise just in sea urchin so everything on their menu has a little bit of sea urchin in it somewhere obviously you can buy a whole sea urchin Um, so it's a slow, it's definitely a slower growing and I think one of the other things which is where the kind of yeah, the chefs and the you know, um, is getting a bit more creative so obviously there's a whole lot of amazing um, kind of Asian influence Uh, kind of recipes. Um, My neighbour was, uh, yeah, his favourite thing is having uh, sea urchin on toast. Um, So I think, yeah, thinking about different ways and lots of different recipes and different uses of it. And I think, yeah, events like this and getting it out there so that people realise that um, it's it's also another thing that they can go fishing for themselves. That when you go out and you put a mask and a snorkel on, you know, you might go spear fishing or looking for abalone, but you could also grab a bunch of urchins and, and have a feed
2: of so them like too. Is it labour intensive? Because apparently you have to you got to feed them, it, so would it be very labour intensive? So like to know, to actually cut it up and. Expensive.
3: yeah that's right they're quite small little yeah, yeah yeah components um so yeah it is reasonably expensive and I guess that's why again um yeah in the Asian market and that's probably a bit of the story with abalone <laughs> that yeah they're real like there's a really big demand there and they're willing to pay I guess a lot for that. That small amount.
0: It's really interesting to see them commercialise it in, in uh, Malacuta. They're now looking at pe- people actually now uh, preserving it and making a, 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 an urchin pate. Uh, and they're just at the stage of getting the labelling done, you know, and hopefully that, that'll take off. It's, it's really interesting to see how people are, are taking to that, but it just takes time and money and, and a willing audience. Hilary, have you got someone else?
6: I do, this gentleman here.
0: Uh, my name is Brian Kane from Broome, Western Australia. Just welcome, got... double welcome, triple welcome. <laughs> actually, that deserves a round of applause coming from WA. Yes, my wife here too. Um, I've just got a
5: a question about, is the erosion of the shoreline here in Apollo Bay
0: a significant issue? Rebecca, do you want to take that up? You're the one who can solve the
2: problem. Yes, it is a significant issue um, and the state government has put a lot of money towards it in the last years to try and solve the issue. Um, like the groins are new they came in in 2021 I think so yes there is a big issue where the especially the central portion of the of the area of the beach has been eroding quite fast so nine meters a year on average up to 18 meters a year or I think sorry no maybe nine meters over the over the period of time actually um so but yeah, so it's different in different areas. So some areas of the beach are equating, especially down near the um, boat harbor, but then further up the beach, they are experiencing quite significant erosion right next to the Great Ocean Road. So that's, yeah, It's definitely a big area on state government. Um,
3: and, and maybe something just to throw into that conversation. There's obviously a lot of talk about how the oceans are warming with climate change. But one of the other changes that we're also seeing is an intensification of the storms and the wave events too. So that's playing into this, yeah changing and what's going
0: on. Would any local like to take Brian and his beautiful wife from Broome along, for, along, along the coastline just to show them? Perhaps sometimes put your hand up and go and meet these people at lunchtime and go and show them what the, uh, that, last, that big storm did and, uh, and how it ripped, out the, it ripped out that great big part of the walkway and, those, and the trees.
7: Hilary? Yes, Kaz has a question. On the subject of the marine park review uh, where can ordinary people we, that don't dive uh, get information to make a, make a decision
4: or make a call on uh, uh, what we say about uh, the future. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so on the Marine Parks website, there's some information about um, the research projects. Deacon puts their stuff out on the Atlas of Living Australia, there's a little bit, and also. There's a couple of
5: places um, Dan puts his stuff up. Um, yeah, yeah. We've got a website. There's quantification
4: of what it was like and what it's. What's what it is since. Is that correct or not? Uh, the <clears throat> thing with the mapping of the seafloor, that's just showing where it was. Um, with the habitat and species, as I say, where are learning and research is happening at the moment. Um, so it's it's hard to quantify the changes that are happening in that deep water because we don't have a baseline. So one thing about setting up the marine parks was that to get the research into these parks so we can actually establish a baseline, so to see how they will change into the future. Um, But as far as commenting, there'll be, in a couple of weeks, um, there'll be a publicly available access portal through Australian Marine Parks and on Facebook and everything to be able to have your say, and that's what it's called. So if you look out for Australian Marine Parks, have your say, um, that'll be the best way to go through. I just want. um, What
0: about uh, Andy? Uh, How
4: close does
0: Southern Parks Australia, how how close do do they work with government who might be influenced by politicians? Um, what, what's the Which link?
4: government is an influenced by oh,
0: no, politicians? Sorry, no, mate. And, 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 and I, and I sorry, <laughs> put you on the. Just, just so, because the people here, this is the, and a really active community. Mm-hmm. They're really switched on, and they and, and they uh, they vote with the voices. They they will uh, letters to the editor. These these are these are problem makers for politicians. Mm-hmm. If we want if we want to create a problem for a politician, is that, is that a good way for them to? Oh, is, that a, is that the wrong way of putting? It, is it? If they were <laughs> involved in the process, um, is, is, that,
4: is that an effective way of doing it? From uh, Australian Marine Parks, and as a government employee, I'm not sure whether I can comment I on that. <laughs> <laughs> from a personal viewpoint, I do have it, but it's probably not my place to say. Okay,
0: I think we can read that as a, as a comment just through a, a very tacit comment, yeah. Hilary. We have another
6: question here. Okay, and, Andrea Dikawi from the Southern Otway Landcare Network. Um, two questions um, one about und- Undaria, undaria um, which appears to be slowly colonising our uh, harbour. Paul I was wondering if um, are there any species that can be planted in there that can outcompete the Andarias? that's one question and then for Rebecca I think um, natural protection systems along this western coastline of Victoria um, what what would have existed there would the shellfish reefs have been part of this coastline um, spreading from here towards um, Port Campbell um, would it would it have just been the dune system? Would it have been, what what do we know about those protection systems that were or are, uh, if, if they still exist? Um, yeah, so that, those are my questions. And, and, and Daria and the natural okay. protection system.
3: Uh, yeah, well, I can jump in first. Um, so, yeah, for those in the audience, uh, Andaria um, is an introduced uh, kelp species. Um, it's also called uh, wakame. Um, so it is a part of the kind of Southeast Asian uh, kind of food uh, culture. So it's definitely one uh, that we can eat. Um, and I think there was even a stall yesterday um, that was selling some. Sa- And for those of you that don't know, um, there is a bit of an infestation of Andaria here in Apollo Bay Harbour. And there's been a lot of work, a lot of people hours going out there diving, trying to pull it out. Um, So, so yes, we know a couple of things about Andaria. So one is it really likes disturbed places or places where it's actually yeah not getting competition from the native species so i guess that's why in areas you know like a harbour um or in in say some of the urchin barren areas that we see so that all the native species have been cleared that's where undaria is really good at getting in and it capitalizes it grows really quickly so it does well in those kind of disturbed environments a bit
0: but, like a bit like a pine tree
3: yeah, it's, it's a classic, you know, like invader weedy species, you know, it's, if, if it's really disturbed then that, then it's going to be able to get in. But we, we have seen um, from research that I've done in, in Port Phillip Bay, that if we have those natural healthy kelp forest reefs that are there, it can pretty much keep it out. You know, you'll get the occasional little plant that'll kind of come in, but it's it's mostly kind of outcompeted competed by the native ones. That's a really good news story, um, but yeah, just the flip side being if we lose the, the native kelp species, the native kelp forests, they go out, then Undaria will, will pop in and pop up. So it, it really is a story about probably the best management of Undaria is, and this is probably particularly on the, the natural like, uh, reefs, is trying to keep the, the native kelps and and, and and big macro algae in. Um, so, yeah, that's that's probably the key story. Also, undaria loves nutrients. So as part of that same bit of work, when when we lost, oh, you know, um, and we cleared out some of the native kelp and we added nutrients in there as well, it just went gangbusters. So if you have areas, like in parts of Port Phillip Bay that we have, where we've lost kelp, we have a lot of nutrients coming in the water, then, I, like, yeah, I, you get forests of of Andaria, it's, um, it's going to, yeah.
0: There's a lot, of talk, uh, a lot of talk about commercializing it because it is edible, um, but as soon as you start commercializing it, are uh, you then just encouraging it? Should you actually then just like planting more kelp?
3: Yeah, that's right. I, I guess, and um, one of our colleagues, uh, Alicia Belgrove from Deakin University at Warrnambool, is actually doing a lot of work about different seaweed species that we can eat. Um, and so there's actually a whole array of different seaweed species that are actually really yummy. So yeah, and yeah. um, so, so we actually be eating our native local seaweed species that live all along this beautiful coastline. And, just on the diversity thing before, if you want to try and ID one of the seaweeds out here, we have that many species that there's six books. And if you stack them on a table, they would be about that tall altogether. So we have thousands of seaweed species along here. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get eating uh, more seaweed.
0: Hey, let's, 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 talk about, let's go now to shellfish and talk about those, uh, system, those natural systems along the coast, Rebecca.
2: Yeah, so when we're dealing with open coasts, um, we are often talking about dune and beach systems. So things like our shellfish, mangroves, a lot of our salt marshes and even sea grasses tend to be in more sheltered environments naturally like your estuaries and your bays. Um, so yeah, our big coastal protection on our open coasts are our dunes um, and beach systems that, that you know, interestingly, in southern Australia, dunes and beaches are, are really big systems because we have that su- Southern Ocean swells, and so we can create these really amazing dune systems. Where there is in northern Australia, they're not. We don't have these big dune systems as much because just of the different wave patterns that, that, that hit the shore. So,
0: dunes are really lovely. They're close to the water. They're also really good to put holiday houses on. How do we, how how do we, how do we, how do we get that, how do we, how, how do we do that buffer? How do we, how do we, how do we have that buffer between the ocean that's coming, it's coming, the ocean's water is coming, how do we how do we how do we manage that? How do we get that in our heads? What do we do?
2: I guess that's the major issue. So for dunes to actually in order them to, for them to be resilient erosion is part of their natural process. So when a storm comes in, it's like a supply of sand that's held tight together with the vegetation. But when a storm comes in, that dune actually is supposed to get eroded and then that sand goes offshore and then it's stored offshore and when there's not storm conditions, that sand gradually comes back and the dune rebuilds over time. That's what it's supposed to naturally do. So, when you put, say, a house or something on the dune system, when it's a- undergoing that natural erosive process to be resilient, um, that's when our infrastructure on the dune becomes at risk. Um, so, essentially, it doesn't mix well because the dune can't do what it naturally does if we put these infrastructure on the coast because it does need to erode to. To do that protective function.
0: So when we go, so next time something comes up for a planning consultation with the community, and it's anywhere near a June, we're now informed that dunes are supposed to erode. It's part of a natural process on a dynamic on a dynamic shoreline.
2: Yeah. So we need to leave them the space to do that. And I think a lot of planning policies now are, are, are having that buffer, um, I'm but not in the past.
0: Sorry, but I'm 55 years old. That was just the most one of the most amazing pieces of wisdom I've, I've heard, you know, thank you so much and, and for, for, for telling us that, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and that's what this is about, we have people like, like uh, Rebecca Morris for uh, the uh, Coastal and Estuarine Adaptation Lab at Melbourne University, and people like Dr Paul Carnell, Blue Carbon Lab, Deakin University, uh, Andy uh, Warmbrun from Southern Parks Australia, uh, and of course uh, Nari Raab. Uh, who works with Dr. Adam Catalini from uh, Deakin University. They're the people, this is the colour of people we get here at, at, uh, at Conversations and Pollard Bay Seafood Festival. We thank them for coming here today. <clears throat> Hands up if you learned something today. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Yeah. Hey, um, it's, it's, it's lunchtime. Oh, we need you back here. What time? We need you back here at? 1.20. 1.20. We need you back in the room by 1.20, okay? Enjoy lunch. I think there could be some sausages downstairs. Oh, Liz Waters, the gorgeous Liz Waters, who makes the best zucchini slice. She wants to say something.
7: Go, Lee. Thank you, Richard. Um, just wanted to let you know that we have some uh, venison sausages kindly donated by one of our guest speakers for the afternoon, um, Anthony Rowe from Dharma Dharma Wild Harvested Otway Venison. Um, so they're being barbecued downstairs. There's also some fabulous cabana um, that, that he's given. And Bill Hurley Fraser, did you actually leave any of that cabana for our guests or has that all gone? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's coming off the barbecue uh, downstairs. Please help yourselves. Oh, there'll be tastings rather than bucket Sally's loads.
4: Got some there. Sa- Sally's everything else.
7: So there's scallop pies over the road. And just in regard to uh, the seaweed, the Andaria, that we were talking about before, there are some um, really fabulous products that are now being made um, with Andaria. And uh, we've actually got some brochures on the front desk from um, one of the companies called Alg Seaweed, um, who are making um, seaweed salts and sprinkles with undaria bush sprinkles that they're using the undaria. And- in as well. So those information cards are there um, for for you to pick up and and have a look at and buy some product if you can. We'll see you back here at 1.30. Thank you. Sorry, Lisa.